Welcome to Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to the guitar player, guitar maker, gear builder, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. Here's your host, Mark Davin. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of Guitar Radio Show. Uh, Today is by far going to be a real fun one for me today. As many of you may know, especially my close friends know, uh, that my all-time favorite rock band is Cheap Trick, and uh, I've been a fan of theirs since 1978, so you do the math uh, on how old I might be. And uh, and um, I've uh, I followed the band around. I took a whole summer, one summer, and followed the band from gig to gig all over the East Coast. And uh, I'm just a, I'm just a nut about this band, and somebody has really done me a gigantic favor, uh, and as well as all the other Cheap Trick fans out there, they have written a listener's guide to the band, and it's called Still Competition: The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick, and it's written by Mr. Robert Lawson, and he's with us today. Robert, welcome to Guitar Radio Show. Hey, Mark. Good to talk to you today. Glad to have you with us. Um, I'm super excited about this. I, mean, I love this book. It's really, you did such a fantastic job on it. You really, really did. Uh, yep, yeah, people seem to be enjoying it. So that, that's great to hear. That. Yeah. People, even people people who, who know a lot about the band, everyone seems to say, well, there's, a, you know, there's at least a couple things in there that I, I never heard that before. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's good to hear. There's actually a couple of things that I, I found I did not know. Um, you know, certain, like, like, for example, like, um, oh, God, where is it in my notes here? Oh, Heaven, uh, Heaven Tonight was originally going to be called American Standard. Oh, the album, yes. Yeah. Well, I never knew that. Well, I think I... But- but I think that might have been more of a, a record company thing that, that they wanted that to be the title. I don't, I'm, I don't know if uh, that was really a title that the band was uh, committed to. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, I, I always like to, to add, whenever I meet somebody who's really into Cheap Trick, I always like to ask them about you know their origins with the band and everything else. I discovered the band in uh, June of '78. A friend of mine said, you know, I, I was telling him how much I, I was into this band or that band. He goes, he goes, you should really check out this band. We were in a music class together. He goes, you should check out this band. I'm going to make you some cassettes. And he brought me a cassette of the first uh, three records. And I was just immediately blown away. And uh, and then May 9th, 1979, I got to see them at the Calderon Concert Hall in uh, on Long Island, New York. And uh, the very next day, I cut out of school, me and a friend cut out of school, and took the bus into into another town, and we uh, put deposits down on guitars. <laughs> and we started, we started a band that day. <laughs> we were like, that, that's it, man. That's it. We were so inspired. It was just incredible. It was really, really amazing. How did you get into the band? How did you find out about them? Uh, I, I predate you by almost exactly one year, because uh, I, I can date exactly when I when I first heard of them. I didn't know anything about them, and on July twenty first, nineteen seventy seven, I went to see Kiss on the Love Gun tour, oh. and Cheap Trick Cheap Trick were the opening act. So I I didn't know anything about them. I'd never heard of them. Uh, my dad took me and my sister to the show, and he had. 
uh, I think he well actually at the time they only had one album out but he had it um, so he knew who they were and uh, shortly after seeing them I mean immediately they became like my second favorite band mm-hmm. now who's your first favorite and, band uh, well at that at that age my first favorite band was Kiss and oh, okay. that's who I was there to see mm-hmm. um, but seeing, seeing Cheap Trick open uh, the show was a was a huge moment for me and it's uh, and here we are all these years later yeah, all these years later yeah it's so funny I saw the Love Gun tour as well and Kiss was a huge band for me um, and I uh, unfortunately I got to see Detective open up for them do you remember Detective? sure the Michael DeBar yeah, yeah Michael DeBar yeah and the Grim Reaper tune when, <laughs> when was that? oh god it was during the Love Gun tour oh god I'm trying to remember I think it was cold. I saw at the garden, I think it was. But I had seen Kiss before that. I saw Kiss in the Destroyer tour and then the Rock and Roll Over tour, which was my favorite, the Rock and Roll Over tour. Uh, Sammy Hagar. Well, the Love Gun tour the Love Gun tour started in Halifax, Canada, and Cheap Trick were the opening act on uh, almost 30 shows ending in um, August in uh, L.A., which, of course, is where Kiss recorded. Uh, Alive, too. Alive, right? too. Yeah. All right. All right. Wow, you should... Yeah, you, have you ever thought about doing a book on Kiss, A Listener's Guide to Kiss? Uh, you know, people have mentioned it to me, but to be honest, there's so many books out there about Kiss that oh, yeah. I, I don't know if there's really room... You know, one of the things about Cheap Trick is that there's only ever been one other book written about them, and it's it's been out of print for a long time. It's a great book written by a friend of mine, uh, named Mike Hayes, uh, and my book's pretty different from his. But with Kiss, I mean, I think there's there's just loads and loads of books. They really are, yeah. Uh, they they are a well documented band. I'm so glad you did this this uh, this this uh, book though. It's so it's so great. Um, what what gave you the inspiration to do it? Well, I was just, you know, I my first book came out a couple of years ago, which is written about another band that's pretty big in the 70s from Scotland called Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it went over uh, pretty well. A lot, of, a lot of fans liked it. I enjoyed the process of doing all the detective work and all the research. And when it was uh, done, it was just a matter of, you know, who, who could I do a second book about? And I had originally... Cheap Trick was going to be my first book, to be honest. And the reason I didn't was I thought, well, Mike Hayes did such a great book job on his book. Uh, you know, there's no way I could kind of add anything to that. And it was only after doing the Nazareth book that I was able to look at it a little differently and and say, well, if I do it the same way I did the Nazareth, which is a listener's guide, chapter by chapter, looking at every album and chart action and bootlegs and TV appearances, then it'll be different enough from Mike's book, uh, which is called uh, Reputation is a Fragile Thing. Mm-hmm. So it'll be different enough from that to uh, to kind of have its own place on the shelf. So that was really what led me to uh, to do the Cheap Trick book. It, if things had gone a little differently, Cheap Trick would have been my first book, but I'm glad it turned out the way that it has. Yeah. So you know, Incidentally, you... I, think, I think for a band like Cheap Trick, who have such a long and varied career, it's almost a shame that there's only ever been two books written about them. You know, like we said, there's tons of books uh, about Kiss. 
There's, of course, loads of books about the Beatles and Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. all kinds, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who's, almost anyone who's been around for 40 years, they got lots of books written about them. Yeah. The cheap trick, there's only two, and I, fi- I find that odd. But, uh, you know, maybe someone will uh, do the third one. I'd no, I, read it. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. It's interesting about, you know, cheap trick fans are, are, uh, really rabid they are they're they're you know really intense fan fandom when it comes to that band so i imagine the fans must have really really been digging have really been digging this book uh yeah the response has been, has been great uh, a lot of people like yourself just been waiting for an, another book about cheap trick just so you can uh, you know learn something new about them and mm-hmm. find out uh, something you didn't know before. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big reader of, of music books and I've got a lot of music books. I've, I've had lots of music books uh, in my life and I love reading one that makes me run back to the records to re-listen to something that maybe I didn't catch. Mm-hmm. And I always think the most successful books for me are the ones that make me do that a lot. That like as I'm reading it, I got to put the book down and then go find a CD or, or dig up the record and go, you know, is that really what that guy said during the fade-out? Or, mm-hmm. or did I really miss that little guitar lick in there? Mm-hmm. Um, so with my book, people are responding exactly that way, that they're reading things that they didn't know, or uh, and it's forcing them to go back to the collection and maybe mm-hmm. re-listen to things a little bit differently than they, than yeah. they did before. And I love hearing about that. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it's interesting, too. You, you and I seem to, I mean, based on, you know, I, I've read this, I've read the book twice now. And... Um, and it seems that you and I are similar in our feelings about certain albums that the band has put out over the course of their career. Um, do you have a particular favorite record? Is there one record that you say, wow, this is it from, from first cut to last cut. This is, this is the best cheap trick record. Uh, well, I, I always go with the debut. I just think it, it, it's yeah. such a great record. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got it's got all the elements in there that I love about Cheap Trick. You know, it's got hard rock parts and kind of a punk sensibility on some of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the songwriting is just fantastic. I don't know where a guy, you know, how do you get a mind like Rick Nielsen to write something like Mandicello and then Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School and also Hot Love, which is almost like a speed metal kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just got everything in it. Uh, so I so I go back to that one a lot. If I could only have one, uh, that'd be the one. But uh, that doesn't mean I don't love In Color. I love Heaven Tonight, Budokan. Uh, I like All Shook Up a lot. Mm-hmm. And I I like a lot of the kind of more recent records. Uh, I think Rockford is, hmm. a, is a really great record. I like the latest. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, music from Hangover or for Hangovers and Silver are great live records. Um, so the output is is pretty strong throughout the catalog. Oh, absolutely! And I think you and I are sharing a brain in regards to all those records you just mentioned. I mean, there are certain records. <laughs> you know, it's definitely the first record for me. Has been. I remember when when and I remember his name too, Danny Forschner. <laughs> he gave me these three cassettes and he says, "You need to sit and listen to these records." And I listened to the three records, and I was like, "Wow, it was so weird to say to hear the first record and then hear in color right after it." You know, to digest all three at the same time was kind of a weird thing right. because because I was like, I was like, "Wow, this first record is is everything I could ever dream of." 
you know. And, you know, at that point, I really, you know, I didn't have the liner notes because it was on a kind of cassette until I went and bought the records. And I realized I was I realized, oh, my God, Jack Douglas produced this and he produced my favorite Aerosmith record, which is Rocks, you know, as well as other Aerosmith records. But um, and I and I I could definitely draw lines as far as the production style uh, between, you know, the first Cheap Trick record and, and, and the and the Rocks record. Um, but yeah, I know I agree with you. Heaven tonight, I love the songs on In Color, but of course, uh, I think like most people, hate the. Uh, really don't care for the production all that much. Um, I really did enjoy the Albini version of In Color. I think that was really great, and of course, Budokan. Um, and I and I love. I really do love Dream Police. I think it's a great record. Um, and like you pointed out, pretty saliently in the in in the book that uh, so many of the songs from that record could have appeared on Heaven Tonight. Yeah. You know. Um, is there, an, I, I mean, I'm, you know, we both love the band, but is there is there an album that you say, wow, what were they thinking record? Because I have one of those. I have one, I have one of those. I, yeah, there's a few of those, but I think it's, important to point out that even some of those missteps in their career they're not really that responsible for you know i think they had poor management for a long time yeah the record labels are definitely not on their side mm-hmm. uh you know for for certain years so for a song that's say pretty divisive in the fan community like the flame and uh, you know some people have sort of made peace with it and i know the band are playing it all this summer mm-hmm. um but you know they didn't want you know whether you you appreciate the song now or not the, the fact is they didn't want to do it and they were sort of forced to do, to do it so even if you hate the song and you don't think they should have had anything to do with it you know i don't really blame them you know they had a they had a gun to their head sort of forcing them to do it right so i i i kind of get I, I i take them off the hook a little bit for accountability because they really didn't have a say on mm-hmm. some of those kind of you know, records where there are a lot of outside songwriters, which I yeah. think is a sin yeah. when you got a guy like Rick Nielsen and uh, he's hardly uh, allowed to contribute to his own album, for God's yeah. sakes. Yeah. That's just, you know, I don't know what kind of record, uh, what kind of record label exec thinks that that's a good idea to yeah. tie that guy's hands behind his back. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, they're in a, an unfortunate position where, other people were making decisions for them, and history has kind of shown that those were not good uh, choices for them. Right. But I don't, I don't really blame the band too much for that. Right. Um, I know. You know, it's funny. I never really had a problem from the get-go. I never had a problem with the flame. I thought, I thought Robin sang it beautifully. I mean, he sings pretty much everything beautifully, and it was, it was. Uh, I don't know. He, 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 he put the intention in there quite well. I thought. Now, for me, it was like a record like The Doctor. That record, I just, I just, sure. didn't, I just didn't understand. I was like, "What in the world?" And I really, you know, I really tried because, you know, being a huge fan of the band. I mean, I have every single record. I have, I think, I have over a thousand CDs when it comes to all the bootlegs and and uh, alternate tracks and this, that, and all the the bunnies bootlegs and all those. I, you know, it's got to be over a thousand CDs. And then, then there's video, but um, 
you know, I just, uh, it's not one of those records that I, I think I've, I don't think I've listened to it more than four or five times. And I was like, I just can't do it. Right. I just can't do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, under, I understand completely. <laughs> um, getting back to the book, one of the cool things, another one of the many cool things in the, in the book is, and folks, you can get this book on Amazon. Where else can they go for this book? Uh, yeah, all Amazon uh, international sites have it. So you can, whether you're in uh, Germany or France or Japan, uh, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, obviously, uh, you can get it. Uh, you can also get it directly from the publisher's uh, website, which is Freeze and Press, uh, their own bookstore. And uh, you can order copies directly from me if you want a signed copy. But uh, the postage is a little bit more because I got to ship from Canada. So if you have, if you're in the states and you have free Amazon shipping, uh, you know, and they'll get it to you in like two days. So it's uh, really easy to get. There's hardcover, paperback, mm-hmm. and uh, an ebook edition. Right. Um, it's really cool because you, you cover the early days pre Cheap Trick um, from right. from '67 to '75. So we hear we 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 get a little taste about the, the Grim Reapers and of course Fuse. Um, which uh, was a big day for me when I walked into. We had a uh, when I was still living in Long on Long Island. I'm I'm in Texas now, but when I was living on Long Island, there was a great great record store store there called Titus Oaks, and uh, we would go there to find rare stuff and a lot of imports and stuff like that. And then one day, just going through the records, I found a used copy of the Fused record, and I got it for like twenty bucks, and it was a it was a thrill. And uh, it was so interesting to try and understand where, where their heads were at, you know, they were, and the maturation process, it was really, really cool. Um, wh- was that information hard for you to find, a lot of that, that uh, early info, or where did you source that from? Uh, not, not really. Um, you know, I, I, with both my books, I've been fortunate to hook up with some you know, real super experts uh, about each band who've been able to, to help out. A good friend of mine named Clive Palmer is uh, kind of one of the world's uh, leading cheap trick uh, experts. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other guys, too, who, who all helped out. Um, so the early the early years are not as difficult to find information out uh, or about these days. You know, there's uh, lots of tunes you can hear on, on YouTube. If you want to hear what Cheap Trick uh, sounded like before Robin was the lead singer, and they had this uh, really neat guy named Zeno on lead vocals, you know, you can hear some of those tracks online. And in the same way, uh, before Robin joined, he was in an acoustic uh, duo with a, a guy who, who I've gotten to know and who helped me out with the book, and Brian Beebe. And mm-hmm. they had a duo called Xander and Kent. And you can listen to like a whole bunch of stuff that they recorded. Uh, also, like on YouTube, so a lot of material is out there. It's a lot different than, you know, I'm sure 20 years ago it would be really difficult to hear any yeah. of that stuff. But uh, now people uh, share it, and people who have rare recordings of Cheap Trick when they were a bar band, mm-hmm. or when uh, uh, Robin was singing with Brian Beebe, that stuff's out there, and yeah. it's uh, really interesting to hear. Yeah. Uh, the Xander and Kent stuff, I think, is really a lot of fun. Because they do like Beatles songs and Neil Young and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, these guys are a pretty neat little uh, duo. 
there's this one board tape that I, I, I have that I really, really love of the band. Um, I don't know where they're playing in Wisconsin somewhere. And um, they start talking and they start ragging on sticks and they start doing a, <laughs> they start doing a little bit of uh, lady. <laughs> and it's really, really funny. Um, they they have always been one of those bands that um, while taking them taking what they do very seriously, they didn't take themselves very seriously. And I think that was a lot of their appeal and, and still is their appeal. Um, was there when you for, first saw them and you said you saw them open for kiss when you first saw them? What was your initial impression? I mean, did you say, wow, what's with this one you know, wacky guy and then the other two rock stars uh, on the stage? Yeah, that was that was definitely part of it. I mean, you know, I, I think I was like 10 years old at the time. So obviously, uh, Kiss had a huge image at that time. Uh, so the, the look of a band and the, the theatrics and the drama, that was a, a big uh, selling point to me. So even though Cheap Trick don't look anything like Kiss, uh, still very image conscious, you know, so seeing like the skinny guy with the baseball hat running around and jumping up and down, uh, you know, I got that right away, like that was fun to see. Uh, I remember Bun uh, playing with those giant baseball bat-sized drumsticks at the end of the set. Right. Um, so there were a lot of visual things that I could kind of latch onto as, as a kid, uh, but the music also was you know, uh, obviously uh, that grabbed me as well because I started buying uh, cheap trick records. I know uh, Heaven Tonight was my first album, so that would have been a couple of years later that I got that. Mm-hmm. But uh, And like I said, they only had the first album out at the time. Right. I, I didn't get that right away. But they made an impression on me both musically and visually. And as a lead into Kiss, it was like perfect. Like I was right in the right place at a another band with an interesting visual dynamic as yeah. well as a great kind of guitar heavy hard rock sound with poppy kind of uh, vocal harmonies i was right in the right place to get sucked into that yeah I, I totally agree with made you made me a fan i totally agree absolutely um uh we talked we spoke a little bit before we we went on um and you had i had asked you whether or not you were a guitar player and you said no but i'm really incredibly impressed and uh, all you guitar people out there you'll be really impressed about how detailed you are about describing what guitars rick is using in what tv appearances and what live shows and stuff like that and uh right down to the serial numbers of the hamers which is really impressive um was did you have help with that or is that just something that being such a big fan, you ended up realizing what all this stuff was. Well, I knew it was going to be important to me. You know, like a, a, a big thing with my books is is the research. You know, I, and I really want to get some some information in there that maybe not a lot of people know. Um, you know that that's really important to me to have some some stuff in there that maybe other people just kind of gloss over. And I get it that. You know, not a, not everybody cares about the serial numbers of his guitars, just like a lot of people don't care about the product codes for the various albums. Mm-hmm. But for me, and for people who are actively collecting the discography, that is important. 
So you need to know the difference between, uh, you know, the first U.S. uh, Budokan on CD, which uses very different mixes than the original Budokan album. And the way to tell the difference between those uh, releases is by the product code. So I use those a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the when it came to the, the guitars, uh, I did have some help from some guys. There's a great book uh, specifically about Hamer, written by uh, Steve Mathis mm-hmm. uh, with his brother Chris, and uh, that that was a great book. But That's I was great also book. able to talk to both of those guys to ask a few things that weren't in that book. So I kind of had them going back to their original notes to dig out some information. And there was a couple of other guys too who really helped out with that. Mm-hmm. So I knew going into it that you know not everyone needs that information, but uh, for the people who do appreciate it, it's gonna be there. And uh, you know, I guess one example would be, even in the music for Hangover's liner notes, Billy Corrigan refers to Rick's checkerboard guitar as a Gibson Explorer. So that drives me nuts, because you know, <laughs> it's not a Gibson, and it's not an Explorer, uh, it's checkerboard, I'll give them that, but uh, yeah, that kind of thing just, just drives drives me nuts. So I wanted to make sure that any time that I mention uh, the 1978 checkerboard guitar, that uh, I mention the serial number, and also uh, a lot of people don't know that, uh, you know, Rick gives his guitars nicknames. Mm-hmm. And that guitar is the Enola. Right. So I, I try to make sure I call it the Enola uh, Hamer Standard checkerboard whenever I can. Right. So we use those names to really identify it so we know when that guitar is being used. And of course, that guitar was damaged in, in Ottawa. Yes. Um, so he had a, a, a duplicate made. But it's a little different. And, uh, you know, so I want to make sure that, you know, we, we talk about that. And, so when somebody says that maybe they they saw them in a club and he was playing his checkerboard, you know, back in like 1974 or something, we can say, well, no, that, that he didn't have it yet. And, you know, I, I like that level of, of detail. Oh, me too. Absolutely. I mean, that being such a guitar geek as well as a cheap trick geek, um, I love it. I'm, I'm, I own uh, eight Hamer guitars and... Uh, uh, from various different years and periods, going back as far as '81, and um, and uh, hearing and reading all that stuff is just—it's just you know I love it. I salivate. And yes, that book by the Mathis brothers is is uh, amazing. It is the ultimate uh, Hammer book. I think. I think it's the only Hammer I, book. I, I may. Yeah, it's an it's a, an essential book for sure. Yeah. I think that I I like to joke about it that uh, I may be the the biggest Hamer expert who doesn't play guitar. <laughs> you know, the one that gets Steve and Chris out of the way. And uh, there's another great guy named Devin who helped me a lot. Once you get all those guys who, who actually play out of the way, I might be uh, the guy who knows the most about Hamer guitar. <laughs> That's super cool. Um, another cool thing that I love about this book is the uh, is the photos and, and the uh, the ads that we would have seen like in Circus Magazine or Cream or uh, right. or, or Hip Parade or any one of the magazines at that time period um, you know ads for all the way back as far as the first album um, I love the ads for Cheap Trick especially the one with Rick holding uh, Enola uh, named after Enola Gay the uh, plane right. that delivered the H bomb, but um, 
uh, him. Uh, there's nothing like a California man. I love. I, I had that on my wall <laughs> uh, for the longest time. It turned yellow, and you know the edges peeled, and you know curled. I should say, and yeah, big, big, big deal, big deal. Um, um, well, that's another kind of example of, of, of my my interest because I don't think it's, I don't think I'm doing anybody any favors by just showing you the cover of the Dream Police album. Right. I think anyone who's reading this book, they've probably seen the Dream Police album, and that's why the interior images. I think there's 40 or 42 in there, and they're mostly vintage ads or mm-hmm. you know things that you would have seen at the time when an album came out. I always love seeing you know ads and old issues of. Rolling Stone for when an album actually first was released, and that uh, leads over into the cover art too, which is no, you know, actual albums on the cover. It looks like there's a bunch of albums on the cover, but they're actually promo EPs or bootlegs mm-hmm. or you know, Japanese seven inches, mm-hmm. you know, things that are are like a little bit to me more interesting to look at mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just all the old albums that we've seen a hundred times. So I like putting all these you know, covers that maybe some people haven't seen and you can play a little bit of, you know, got it, got it, need it. Right. And, uh, go through your collection, see what you uh, are maybe missing or, or just to think, well, well, what's that one? You know, yeah. I've never seen that one before. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a, do you have a favorite bootleg? Uh, the Toronto Elma Combo show, it would be pretty high for me. Um, not just because it's in Toronto, but it's uh, it's one that I've had for like a really long time. Uh, I, it's just an incredible show. It's, it's a great early, uh, you know, show. Uh, the crowd is fantastic. The band are playing really raw. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that you only get when you go back to the to the early bootlegs. Mm-hmm. Just how raw and powerful they, mm-hmm. that they were. You know, they they did tighten up and clean up as as they got older and became more professional. But the Toronto Elma Combo show is a great. Uh, that's a great bootleg for anyone to listen to. If you don't own it, you can dial it up on YouTube and, and hear the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's a real favorite. But almost anything from that era, I like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I've, I'm a uh, Samurai Rock Band was a big one for me. And, um, sure. And then uh, California Man 78 is just killer. Just amazing. Yeah, that was the first one I ever had on, on vinyl, and, and, I, and I did like it a lot. It's uh, I, that one really kind of took my head off when I heard you know how raw that was. Yeah. Uh, the the cool thing is, is around that era they did a whole bunch of different radio broadcasts, so you can listen to stuff you know like the Rockford Armory show. Right. And uh, you know not just the Alma Combo. There's of course the Whiskey uh, in L.A., which I tried to do as much research on those shows as I could. There's a lot of information about those Whiskey a Go Go uh, club shows that they did. And I really tried to dig in, and it was kind of a fear of mine that as soon as the book came out, I'd find out some tidbit that I hadn't known before. Hasn't happened yet, but uh, I'm sure at some point it'll happen. <laughs> uh, I think those whiskey shows are, are really worth uh, talking about. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're so good. So good. You know, it's funny. There was this one show that you mentioned. Um, it was Chicago Concert, July 16th, 1979. And uh, right. I I always used to walk back in the seventies. Of course, we all walked around with boom boxes and stuff. I had this little tiny little boom box with a cassette cassette deck in it, and I was always playing Cheap Trick. And uh, I knew that uh, a local station in New York, WPLJ, was going to be uh, uh, 
simulcasting that show. And, uh, of course, I until I read your book, I didn't remember the actual date. But I remember the moment when I popped the cassette in and hit record and I was just transfixed to the radio. I was at my friend's house and he was like, come on, let's go do this. I said, no, man, we got to wait till this is done recording. Right. And I, and I recorded that I recorded and had that on cassette for the longest time. And, um, it was such a great show. And, and you had mentioned that the, uh, they were playing a little fast, you know, yeah. and, uh, the ad- adrenaline or whatever else at the time. And, um, Right. And it's just a, it's such a killer show. It's so good, and uh, that was the first time I heard Tom sing. Um, oh no, maybe not. No, maybe not. I'm not sure if that was the first time I heard Tom sing. Um, I know what I want. Is that, is that the Chicago Fest show? No, not Chicago Fest. June sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine. That was the like sort of a welcome home kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Hail the conquering heroes, kind of a thing. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know what venue that was. I'm sure it says it here in the book. I can't find it right now. I'm going through it right now. But um, super cool, and I, it's it's you you. This book has sparked so many memories, and it's amazing how the way you wrote it uh, created such visuals. In, in my head of, of just taking me back to those particular moments and uh, no pun intended taking me back but um, but uh, but yeah it's just so great um, one cool thing that I didn't know and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know this is that um, the version of Day Tripper on Found All Parts all the parts um, I didn't know that was a studio version I actually thought that was live and I certainly didn't. Oh I certainly didn't know that Tom didn't play bass on it, and it was it was actually Rick on there. That's super cool. Yeah, the whole the whole found the all the parts uh, credits are are not to be trusted. You know, like they <laughs> songs like from a different era, right? And except for the one song that is uh, from Budokan, uh, all the others are were actually kind of recorded at the same time. Um, you know they, they did they did a whole whole bunch of sessions uh, I don't know it's like twelve or fourteen tracks or something before they all shook up album and I really wonder if if they'd put that out as an album if that would have kind of changed their history a little bit and uh, but you can listen to to that all on uh, on YouTube as well the the entire yeah I don't know what they call it now just like the Jack Douglas you know sessions or something yeah but uh, you know they did Loser and. And some songs that ended up being like B sides and things like that. But uh, yeah, found all the parts is uh, it, it's great stuff. I don't know why they kind of fudged on on the dates on it, but yeah, well, you know, I, they, I, they kind of do that a lot. It was some sort of it might have been some something in marketing, you know, that like let's do it this way. Yeah, maybe you know. Um, it was interesting because when those new discs and you new discs came out. There was several different artists that did that. I know Joe Jackson did one. Cheap Trick did one. I'm trying to think of who else did did them. Do you remember? There, there was a few of them. I, I think it was um, you know it was something that Epic was was trying, and they thought it was going to really like take off. Mm-hmm. I guess it didn't. No. Uh, <laughs> 
but the cheap trick one seems to be the most famous for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it's the only one that everybody remembers, really. You know, yeah, it's probably the one that sold the most too because they were really hot at the moment. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Oh, sure. At the at the time, they were huge. So I'm, yeah, I think that I think the Joe Jackson was the Look Sharp record. Maybe mm. I don't remember, but I remember I remember them all coming out at the same time, being at the record store and seeing all these, you know, short ten inch sleeves and being like, "Well, this is interesting." You know, and if it had cheap trick on it, I was of course I was buying it. Didn't matter if I had heard it or heard about it or whatever. I just was scooping it up. Yeah, of course. So yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, that's an easy. Yeah, um, you you mentioned in in the book a lot uh, about how how the albums are, are received, how the records were received, and stuff like that. Um, but like for example, with uh, let's see here, I'm looking at all shook up, which I love this record. I really do. And I love your stories yeah, in here. Too. I love your stories in here. The um, we don't always know. Were they always selling really well in Japan? Like, were they always in top forty in Japan, regardless of what record was released? Was it was it, was it a constant stream for them? Because I know it was always. You know, America would fall in love and then fall out of love and fall in love and fall out of love. But Japan seemed to be pretty consistent. You think? Well, they, you know, it, it kind of starts, they had a big hit with, uh, or a top 10 hit anyway, with Clock Strikes 10. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we know what happened when they went over there and they played Tokyo and Osaka and Nagoya, and uh, which, of course, resulted in the Budokan album. Uh, but going over to Japan in their, you know, in their history, that seems to be the first time that they're really treated like rock stars, mm-hmm. that, you know, they had you know, massive crowds of fans running after them in, in cabs and waiting outside the hotel room. In North America, they were still playing in a lot of bars and, and playing clubs like, like the Combo in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Japan, they were already, like, huge. And, you know, it, I mean, that shows that they definitely were not playing venues the size of, like, the Budokan uh, in North America yet. So they, were, they started off on a really high... Uh, point in, in Japan, and they were able to maintain that for quite a while. You know, they went back with uh, with Pete in the band when he was first kind of substituting for mm-hmm. for Tom. And uh, Japan has always apparently, you know, been very loyal to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember one time after Tom had left the band, um, which you know, surprisingly, I wasn't too affected by that I thought I would be and I really I wasn't so much I thought Pete did a great job and I was always I always thought that John was you know very satisfactory um uh I was going to see do you remember a band called Hanoi Rocks oh for sure yeah Yeah. um they had they had broken up and they start and then the uh the, the guitarist uh, Andy McCoy and Nasty Suicide had started a group after that called Cherry Bombs with a Z. And um, um, my girlfriend and her sister and I decided to go into Manhattan to CBGB to see them play on a Sunday night. And they said, okay, we're going to have an opening group first. And I'm just sitting there, you know, I'm kind of waiting. And the opening group comes out. And please welcome... Sick Man of Europe. 
And I'm like, what? I'm like, what? And on the stage comes, on the drums, Anton Fig, on guitar, uh, Pete Kamita, on vocals is Dagmar, and on bass is Tom. And they did a set of the worst music I'd ever heard. <laughs> it was just bloody awful. It was it was atrocious. It just made no sense. Her vocals were. She was trying to do this Debbie Harry thing that it just she just wasn't pulling yeah. it off, and and it was it was just god awful. But it was so surreal. To not, I mean, they weren't even listed on the bill. They weren't in the Village Voice ad. Nothing. It was just all of a sudden they were there. And there were many times after that that I would see Tom in uh, the city uh, walking around the parks and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was a, it was a very surreal <laughs> moment. Did you ever get to hear that band? Uh, no. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I don't know if they ever recorded or anything, but that was the only time I ever heard anything, and it was not, it was not good. Um, well, it's definitely, definitely unique that you got to see uh, those two guys in a band together. Yeah, it was whether, whether so, the music wasn't that great. So, so pretty interesting. It was very, it was interesting to look at. It was a visual oddity, <laughs> you know. And, and Anton Fig, of course, who was at that point, you know working still was and still was working with uh the david letterman band so you know that was his it was very strange um what's your opinion of the next position please record uh well it it, it's got some interesting moments i know some people who really love that record um i think it's it's a little scattershot Mm -hmm. uh you know there are there are some issues I think with the with the songwriting maybe a little bit. Um, you know it's a it, it's a neat it's a neat time. Uh, Pete Kamita did record some of the bass parts. They replaced them mm-hmm. uh, with either John or uh, Rick. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it's got some great moments. Like it, I think if you want my love is is, is great. She's tight is like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Uh, Robin's vocal on that. But you know, time is running, and Saturday at midnight. Oof. Uh, I think they're. I think they're kind of awkward. <laughs> yeah, and then of course uh, there's that Todd song on there, and they say it's not. They say that Todd didn't write it, but that sounds like a Todd song, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but yet he's not. He's not credited as a songwriter on the song on the song, right? Well, the you know I I find. Uh, bo- both next position, please, uh, and one on one to be uh, kind of kind of interchangeable. Uh, I think I even I said some of the wrong songs there, but uh, you know, on next position, please, I can't take it. It's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it gets a little it gets a little awkward with, with some of those other. Both both those albums to me, they're almost like side like three and four of a, like a double album but that's mm-hmm. not necessarily a good thing yeah well as a guitar player what's really strange is like on the one on one record there's only one song on the record that actually has a real guitar solo on it and that's a uh, four letter word right. <laughs> and, and it's a bizarre yeah. guitar solo <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, but you know, and that, that's kind of an awkward time for like a lot of bands where keyboards were coming more and more yeah. prevalent. Mm -hmm. I really like One on One. I think it's a strong record as far as the intensity of it. I think it's a it's it's got a lot, it's got a lot of energy. I dig it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think the the production is is kind of dated. Yeah, by today's terms, but oh, a lot yeah. of a lot of bands. A lot of bands fall into that. Oh yeah, I mean, listen to, uh, um, oh yes, is uh, owner of a lonely heart. <laughs> sure. It's like wow, <laughs> that production couldn't be any more eighties. Could you know? It's so shiny and glassy, and oh goodness gracious! But um, yeah, a lot of. Go um, You tell this really great story in the very beginning of the book and the introduction of the book would you share that with with my listeners it's it's really great about rick wanting to kill me yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was a, that was not a not a fun moment to, <laughs> but it, but it worked out <laughs> it, it eventually it worked out so so the story is that uh it was backstage after a concert here in toronto where they were opening for zz top and uh, they kind of had a an industry meet and greet uh, thing because they were on Red Ant Records and it was a big deal that the self-titled album had come out in uh, 97. So a bunch of industry people and I, you know, I've been in working in record stores for, for decades, so I was backstage and I had brought in this thing called uh, the White Album. And for some people who don't know what the White Album is, Cheap Tricks White Album, that is, it's a double LP for radio play of the band uh, being interviewed, and then it's got songs cut into it, so a radio station could just like play a whole side of this album, and uh, as a as an exclusive interview with Cheap Trick. So it's a double album. It looks exactly like the Beatles' White Album, except it's black, and uh, there's even a small picture of it on the front cover of my book. Mm -hmm. um, you might not be able to really see it. But uh, it's all black, and it just says Cheap Trick on an angle, just like the Beatles' White Album says the Beatles on a little angle. But when you open up the Cheap Trick uh, White Album, the inside is completely white on both sides. And so I thought that would be perfect to get signed. And uh, I brought it to Rick first, and he, I guess he'd never seen it before. And he started accusing me of uh, bringing a bootleg to him, and, you know, why do I have this? He used some... Uh, some language with me. He was he was definitely pretty angry. You know, what are you doing bringing a bootleg uh, for me to sign? He was, he was pretty angry about it. And some friends of mine who were also in the record industry were there, and they kind of jumped to my defense and said, "No, Rick, it's a, it's a promotional thing. It's a it's a it's a Canadian, you know, radio uh, record." So he signed it, and I I I walked off. I was totally dejected, and I just felt depressed that you know I made Rick Nielsen mad at me and mm -hmm. you know he he was really angry I just felt terrible and uh, Bun was sitting off by himself and I went over to him and said hey Bun you know can I get you to sign my record and he went uh, <laughs> Bun's response was hey the White Album cool <laughs> Bun always knew <laughs> and I was like can you go tell Rick that <laughs> Maybe it'll mean more coming from you but uh, eventually they you know, eventually he calmed down and they had some uh, press there taking photos of, of everybody and uh, 
I guess a few weeks later, there were some photos that were published in, a, in, in this, like an industry kind of magazine, uh, just for the Canadian uh, record industry. And in it, uh, there's a picture of, of a bunch of us together, and Rick's like got his arm around me. Yeah. And I remember the photographer took a few different photos that Rick was uh, leaning on me and putting yeah. you know his arms around me and, and doing stuff like that. I was thinking, boy, he's really cozy now. So I kind of took that as him uh, trying to make amends for you know yelling at me. Yeah, for sure. And it, you know, I think I, I mentioned the book too. Like, like I'm not I'm a small guy. And uh, Rick was just like towering over me. You know, he had the, the wide uh, shoulders, uh, that suit that he used to wear. And of course, yeah. this is when he had the, like the long beard and all the rings and right. uh, the, the sunglasses. He was really an intimidating, uh, you know, guy. I was probably like 110 pounds, and I don't know, I'm like five four or something. <laughs> and uh, he was just this looming figure over me, yelling and swearing at me, and. It was uh, it was really uncomfortable, but at the end, at the end of the day, I, I got a, a neat story to tell, and I got a photo of uh, me with uh, Rick with his arms around me, right. uh, which we put in the book. Uh, right? Yeah, I see it. Uh, I'm looking at it. Yeah, and I, and it, so it all worked out. But it's a, it's a great story because I had a similar interaction with him as well. One time where he was he was not too pleased with me, and then. And then uh, I think I was just bothering him at a moment where you know I was fanboying out, and I was bothering him at the moment when when it was really not a good time. I was I don't know I was sixteen or seventeen at the time. Right. And then of course I met him when met him again in my twenties, and then um, I had a band that did a, some, an opening date with them, and then uh, and then later on in my thirties and stuff like that. But uh, I actually have one story where I was. Going, me and a friend. I had a friend who had a uh, what he considered an ultimate collection of cheap trick paraphernalia and collectibles and stuff like that. And Rick wanted to see them, so we went to go pick up Rick at this at his hotel, and we drove him back to my friend's house. So here I am. I'm in the car with Rick in the passenger seat. My friend in the back, and I pop in a tape of. Um, Jeff Beck and I know I, I'm a huge Jeff Beck fan that's my favorite all-time guitar player yeah, me too And oh really cool and uh, what favorite album oh god so so, so many to, to pick from I, I like everything he's ever done yeah me too but do you have a do you have a that might be a separate show <laughs> alright so we're driving and I'm going to see him in a couple weeks uh, me too I'm seeing him on the 26th where are you seeing him uh, he's here in Toronto on uh, August the uh, oh, must 1st, be. Oh, wow. Fantastic. That's great. Uh, we'd, we we should uh, get on the phone and talk about uh, the set list. Um, so we're, we're, in the, we're in the car. We're driving, and on comes uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat from Wired, which is like a sure. sem- seminal cut uh, from Jeff. And um, all of a sudden, Rick goes, oh, my God. Shut up! Everybody shut up! <laughs> and he turns up the volume. He goes, listen to this part. And it's my favorite part of the song as well. And and we both looked at each other and went, we had this like glazed over look on our faces. I'm like, isn't that amazing? And we were. it was so amazing to be geeking out with one of my favorite guitarists over our favorite guitar player. 
It was a really, really oh, very surreal moment. <laughs> and then uh, we got we got back to the house and uh, hung out, and um, I had Rick sign the back of one of my hammers, my the hammer that I'm actually going to be cremated with when I go. Um, Excellent. And um, it was a, it was a very a very cool moment to see him in that place of you know just total fandom of wow this is you know getting swept away by the music it was really cool to see somebody get swept away by by music that you have been swept away by his music for almost your entire you know your certainly your all your teen years and most of your adult life so that was a cool it was a very cool moment to see but yeah he he can be one of those guys that can be a little you know gotta catch him on the right moment right day otherwise you know I mean he did he did punch Slash in the face for trying to take his hat off. <laughs> I uh, just as an aside, I'll tell you that I'm such a fan of Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, but I actually have a CDR that I put together that's got like nine different versions of that song. Oh like wow! Who covered it. That's cool. So you what? You have the Joni Mitchell version. <laughs> Yeah, right. There's the Joni Mitchell, of course. There's Monk's version, and then uh, yeah, man. Oh, that's super cool. That is great. Yeah, I love that track. It's, yeah, I've got a couple. I've got a couple of. I think I've got a couple of live versions uh, from Charles Mingus originally doing it, uh-huh. and then yeah, there's there's Beck, Joni Mitchell. I think I've got a John McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of them. Wow. Wow, it's like we were. But sep- I don't have a story of listening to it with Rick. It's it's it was a surreal. It was very surreal. It really, really was, and that was, it, you know, it wouldn't have happened if it, if not for that friend of mine. Um, Damn it! But uh, because he didn't drive, and he was like, "I need somebody to drive me," and you're a big cheap trick fan. You want to come? I said, "Yeah, you think? <laughs> Let's do this." <laughs> you know, but uh, I was such a. Uh, you know, and, and this was—I don't know what year what this was. This had to have been. So this happened around 2003, where I went to that show and we picked him up, brought him to the house, and all that stuff happened. So, like I said, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that friend of mine. But it's—it's it's so funny, you know. You—you you and I must share. A, we must. I think we share a brain, or we were separated at birth, or what. But we we have so many similarities as far as the music that we love. I, I think that's really great. I, it's, it happens so rarely. That I meet somebody who, you know, their favorite guitar player is Jeff Beck, and they also love Cheap Trick. That's kind of an odd thing, don't you think? <laughs> well, I don't think Jeff Beck gets enough credit in kind of the Cheap Trick history. You know, it, it's real easy to go to the Beatles as a reference point uh, for an influence on the band, and of course, you can talk about ELO, and and that's all valid. But uh, the Yardbirds stuff mm-hmm. was a real huge uh, influence on Rick, and mm-hmm. I, I tried to mention it in the book when I when I could, you know, when different elements would uh, come up, uh, to, you know, just to make sure that that kind of stuff's not forgotten, you know. And I don't have any issue with them being influenced by the Beatles. I love the job that they did on the Sgt. Pepper live album, mm-hmm. and I love the way that they, you know, do Day Tripper that we've already talked about. But the Yardbirds and Jeff Beck influence is huge. So when there's even a little thing like that guitar lick that Rick plays at the end of uh, Up the Creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Freeway Jam. Uh, Freeway Jam. From, yep. uh, from Freeway Jam, yeah. yeah. So like that's the kind of thing. Like I, You know, when I was saying earlier about comments or little points of reference that are going to make people go back and listen to the records, uh, that's an example of that. Mm-hmm. That people who 
know that song, and a lot of people don't like that song. They think it's kind of a novelty tune and it's too jokey. Uh, to read that little section and go, hold on, Rick Nielsen's quoting a Jeff Beck fusion instrumental in that weird <laughs> soundtrack throwaway tune that I never really paid any attention to. Yeah. I got to hear that again. Yeah. So that that's an example right there of, yeah. of putting those things in the book that'll make people go. So even if you still think that that's just a jokey throwaway soundtrack tune and you know, you're not going to take it very seriously and, and the video is silly and all that. And you still got to go, yeah, but he quotes freeway jam in there. That's weird. <laughs> it's so amazing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I got to tell you, man, I love this book. I think it's so great, and it's 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 a great reference guide. It's so, folks. If you're a Cheap Trick fan, or even if you're just an occasional Cheap Trick fan, and you and you have a favorite record, just to read the section about your favorite record is fantastic because you you then you go back and you listen to the record in a completely different way. Um, and that to me just enhances it, it breathes breathes new life into these into these records, which is fantastic. So kudos to you, you did a great job. Thanks. I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. So what what um, what's next? You're gonna write another one? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm working on a book right now about a Canadian band called The Guess Who. Oh yeah, for sure. Later became uh, members of that. Later became BTO, right? Uh, the original guitar player, yeah. When he left uh, the Guess Who, his, his next band after that was Bachman Turner Overdrive. Right. So they're they're another group who there's only one book ever written about them. It's been out of print for years and years. So I'm going to kind of do my style of it mm-hmm. of, of the album guide format. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they're another group. Uh, you know being a Canadian in the seventies, I grew up with their music as well, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a good time to go back to it and yeah. kind of give it the kind of uh, album guide that I've been doing. And then, and then after that, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> maybe Jeff Beck. Hey, maybe you know, there's only been one really decent book about him called Crazy Fingers. And yeah, I got it. Yeah, and that's out of print. Um, so you know, and and it's a decent book. It's it's. It's not really introspective. I mean, then he came out with that uh, that uh, coffee table book with Ross Halfen, but um, I don't know. It'd be that would be cool. A, a, a listener's guide to Jeff Beck. That's deep. That's deep. I mean, because you, if you go all the way back to the Yardbirds, all the way through the stuff what he did with Lord John Such and all that stuff. The steakhouse sessions. There's a boy. Oh boy, you want to? You and I, we need to get together sometime. You can go rummage through my my bootleg collection of Jeff Beck. <laughs> it just <laughs> goes like on. It goes on and on. <laughs> oh man. Well, this has been this has been a real treat for me. I, I, I you know, uh, I feel like a kid in a candy store with this book and uh, and having this conversation with you. And uh, it's going to be. I'm going to be listening to Cheap Trick all week now. I just know it. Awesome. I thank you so much. Folks, the book is called Still Competition, which, by the way, my favorite song off of that record, off of Heaven Tonight. Still Competition, The Listener's Guide to Cheap Trick by Robert Lawson. (laughs) 
out Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, and Tumblr. And of course, on GuitarRadioShow.com.